Hey everyone, my name is Josh Proctor and this is the Life on Side B podcast. On this podcast, we are going to discuss, as the name pretty much clearly states, what life as Side B LGBT Christians is really like. For those of you who don't know, Side B is a term used to refer to Christians who are LGBT, attracted to the same sex, or have gender dysphoria, yet hold a traditional view of sexuality and marriage, and therefore live according to that view. Every episode, I will be talking with different Side B Christians about different aspects of their life, faith, and experiences. My goal with this podcast is to show that being Side B is not this depressing life of self-hatred and loneliness, but rather, it can be pretty dang beautiful and amazing. Now, every season, we will be focusing on a different theme of sexuality and faith issues related to the lives of Side B Christians. This season, though, I am really excited because we are going to be looking at different ways Side B Christians live out their sexuality and find intimacy and community. Each of these interviews has been a huge encouragement, even for me, as I navigate what community and belonging look like in my own life. You will be able to see that there are so many different ways that Side B Christians can live with joy within their faith. And in that way, I hope it can be an encouragement for you too. So with that, let's head into today's episode. Hey everyone, oh, you have no idea how excited I am for today's episode. I'm talking with Becca Mason about adoption and fostering, and while I have literally loved every single conversation that I've had on this season, this one is particularly dear to my heart, especially because of my own love for fostering and adoption. So I am really excited for you all to hear this. So buckle up and get ready because you are not going to want to miss a single minute of this conversation. Uh, you have no idea how much I have been looking forward to this interview <laughs> for quite a bit of time because I went to your um, workshop at the first Revoice with Jill and y'all had me crying like crazy. I loved it. It was probably my favorite workshop altogether. Oh, good. Yeah, that was so good. Uh, so before we get into our discussion and everything. Could you give a little bit of an introduction of your, about yourself for everyone listening? Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, like Josh said, my name is Becca Mason. Um, I teach at a high school in Tennessee, and so my career has been mostly in education, um, but I started in um, ministry doing seminary training in women's studies and sexuality And so things have kind of intertwined to where now I get the opportunity to really teach about human experience and um, issues of sexuality. So that has been um, a real blessing to kind of tie in all of my favorite activities and kind of nerdy things with life and things that I study just for fun, which 
a lot of people think fun research is an oxymoron, but I have a lot of fun with it. So that's what I do with most of my time. And then um, the last three and a half years have been filled to the brim with taking care of two children that I adopted from foster care system in Kentucky when I lived there. So it's kind of a long and winding story to um, get from how one ends up going from growing up a pastor's kid in the closet to um, kind of a side A, live and love, God loves me and so do I kind of attitude to all the way back to now I teach at a Christian school and I'm the mom to two kids. So it's an interesting kind of story and hopefully we'll get to talk a lot about that and how that all ties into foster care and adoption. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into hearing about your experience as a mom and how you became a mom, can you share a little bit about how, first of all, how you identify and kind of how you've gotten to where you are in reconciling your faith and sexuality? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, um, it's always an interesting question when people ask about identifying um, that for the most part, having grown up in a conservative Christian uh, situation that the phrase same sex attracted is the terminology that was most used. And um, it's what tends to be my default, especially because most of the time I'm still speaking about these issues with very conservative areas of the evangelical church. And it is what people in those situations are most comfortable with. So most of the time when I'm talking to people, that's a specific phrase uh, that I use. Thankfully, I also have the opportunity to speak with both younger generations and people who are um, not as active in an evangelical role. And if I attempt to explain to them that I have persistent, unwanted same-sex attractions, they kind of look at me like I've grown a third eyeball in the center of my head. So a lot of times it's a whole lot easier and much more understood to say that I am a gay or lesbian Christian who is celibate. And that is universally understood as being um, a culture shifting sort of statement on both faith and sexuality. So usually just depending on my context, those are the two mm-hmm. phrases that I use most. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And, and I hear that a lot from people that it, it's really a context situation of what yeah. makes sense to the, to the situation that I'm in. Yeah. I used to try to like force one specific thing with people and um, became really convicted when I started teaching Bible and spent a lot of time looking, especially at um, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17. And he essentially delivers the gospel um, without ever mentioning the Yahweh, the God of his one true faith of having been raised in Judaism. But he quotes Gentile philosophers and all of these Greek thinkers and Roman people and coming to recognize the fact that you can bring the exact same message in terminology that your listener is most comfortable with Mm -hmm. is a really much more effective way of communicating. So trying in my old age to uh, be a little more understanding and give grace to the hearer and um, work with some terminology people are most comfortable with. And then hopefully be able to kind of open their minds to something uh, that might be a little different to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so with that, then can you share a little bit, you know, you, you mentioned something about that you 
had been side A for a time yes. and, you know, growing up Christian and, and now being celibate. So how, how did all of that happen? Yeah. When I was in college, um, was really kind of a coming to terms with sexuality and with faith um, that I had given my life to Christ in high school, um, but had also been raised in um, a conservative Southern Baptist context that whether it was directly spoken or not, it was understood that being gay was pretty close to the unforgivable sin. And so there was a lot of shame just automatically culturally and religiously with that idea in the early 90s. So it was something that I never talked with people about, um, didn't share any of that with my family actually until I was almost 24. So that was a big, big struggle understanding. Um, but when I went to college, it was really the first time that I was, first of all, far enough away from home to really be able to explore and understand and to be around people who had a more progressive understanding of theology. Um, I went to a um, Christian college, but it was a more progressive Christian college. So while I was pursuing an uh, understanding of kind of working out a call to ministry, I'd had this idea that uh, ministry, especially for a woman, generally meant dying of old age in a hut in Africa somewhere, like doing the whole felt board story with little kids. And I was like, that is so not my style, God. If that's what you've called me to, we're going to have an issue. So it was really at first kind of like a Jonah story that I just kind of ran the other way, that if this is what serving you means, forget about that. And in God's grace, he called me back to himself. And uh, so I transferred to this Christian college and was studying uh, Christian ministry and history and um, had this opportunity to be in an environment that had much more um, open ideas regarding women in ministry, uh, regarding relationships and sexuality, and was the first time that I was even in a situation that I could consider that as a woman I could do something other than single mission work, or that it could possibly be a situation that I could reconcile my, situ my sexuality and my faith. Um, so at that time, I ended up in a relationship with a girl that I met in college, and we were together for several years. It's always interesting now, looking back at that, that I had opportunity to preach in several churches and remember very distinctly this one time that I went to speak in a church and was talking about reconciliation with family and um, I had my girlfriend sitting on the front row while I was delivering this sermon and talking about being reconciled to the father. Uh, when I was in the situation that was my own earthly dad, we were barely speaking at that point because I had such a tear between this is what I'm really beginning to see is my truth. And this on the polar opposite is where my family stands with all of this. And going through that fear of, in some ways, following in his footsteps, but in other ways, being so completely isolated from it, that I really did live in a lot of fear that if I continued in that way, um, that I would lose my family. That I could possibly ruin my dad's ministry. He had been a pastor for uh, decades at that point. And 
um, just really battling that whole time of beginning to feel like I'd really found myself and come into my own, but knowing what a cost that that was going to be. So for several years, that was just kind of a living a double life that the few times I did go home, just kept things in the closet, didn't talk with people about uh, this new life that I had discovered in college. But after a few years of attempting to really explore that idea and uh, continuing to study scripture and being in this relationship, it was just an ongoing conviction that even as I worked through all the other theological hangups I had from a more fundamentalist um, conservative upbringing and really working through a lot of legalism, things like that, that this issue of sexuality still was not being resolved in my heart and in my mind and came to an understanding one day um, reading through Paul, which a lot of people say is a turning point one way or the other for their Mm -hmm. understanding of sexuality. Um, But looking through Ephesians, when he's talking about all of these relationships and how people submit to one another and how this is this and that is that and beginning to come to terms with the idea that God talks a lot about relationships with fellow believers and then specifically within unique relationships and that God as a perfect teacher wants his children to work in their relationships in the best ways possible and that I'd been in relationships with men and I'd been in a relationship with a woman. And I knew that those two things were very different and God gave very specific instructions for how men and women in marriage relationships were supposed to get along with each other. And there was nothing in scripture about this very unique same sex relationship. And just that starting question of if God is okay with this, he would have given me some instructions on how to do this well. Mm-hmm. And I'm not finding it. And that really led me down a road of kind of deconstructing again, everything. And after several more years of doing that, of actually like reading the Bible for myself, as opposed to just trusting what other people told me, one of the things about being raised in church is you think you know all about the Bible and you very rarely actually sit down and read it for yourself. Mm-hmm. So reading, studying, praying, devoured everything that I could find about human sexuality from some of the most liberal Christian writers um, that I could find to some of the most fundamentalist, just crazy conservative, patriarchal sort of things and seeing where is it that I'm going to land on this. And um, after all of that, the idea... I tend to be someone that swings from one extreme to the other. And so after that, it was, well, if this isn't going to work, then I need to deny this altogether Mm. and tried to do more of a side X. God has delivered me from this. And that returned me really to kind of a legalism of I'm never going to be good enough because it doesn't matter what I do. This thing isn't going away and I am never going to please Jesus. And just having this, overwhelming just feeling of shame and failure again that if I really love Jesus this would go away and seeing just how destructive that was for myself for my relationship with Christ for my relationships with other people of living in fear constantly of relationships getting out of hand or assuming this was just going to be the natural end of relationships with women um, until I really began to explore the idea of just saying this is what it is. My sexuality is something that most likely is not going to change. But within that, I don't have to be 
um, ruled by lust or by unhealthy relationships or mm-hmm. dependency or anything that applies to relationships, regardless of your sexuality. So beginning to work through those issues, discovered how to have healthy relationships in Christ with people of all genders, uh, understanding what that looks like, uh, getting the things that I was so desperately seeking in relationships, um, getting those in healthy ways that God intended me to, um, and doing all of this therapy and discipleship and counseling worked wonders on my relationship with the Lord and on uh, the relationships with other people. But that root perspective of orientation never changed. And beginning mm-hmm. to see that I've dealt with all these sins and this is still here, I can live in a way that is victorious in Christ and not let this one thing define me or rule over me or think that I can't get started serving Jesus until this goes away, that this may never go away and that I still need to live my life for Christ. And um, that took years to get to. Um, I'm 39 and it's been just the last five or six years that I've intentionally started looking at that idea of being able to walk in the spirit despite the fact, and sometimes because of the fact that I continue to rely on the Lord to give me freedom from any sort of sexual sin and recognizing that sexuality and relationality are not the be all end all of who I am and that those things can be set aside in order to be able to serve Christ to the fullest. Oh my gosh. It's so crazy. I feel like there's so many connections in between our stories in many ways Um, because I did the exact same thing after being side A and realizing that that's just not, that was not where I was supposed to be. I went to the other extreme and went to the ex gay for a while and then also realized that I, that, my attractions weren't going to change and then had to figure it out. So um, I, I love what you said about how for us to be used by the Holy spirit does not mean that we have to wait for our attractions to change. It does not mean like God is able to use us in spite of, and as you said, sometimes because of our circumstances and, and the circumstances that we find ourselves in and that it's not this thing of, I have to wait in order for to change in order to be used by Christ because God can work in our lives. I mean, God does work in our lives as we are where we're at. Exactly. And that was a huge thing for me, understanding like that idea of beauty from brokenness and passages in Joel, where he talks about restoring the years that the locusts have eaten Mm -hmm. that so much of that idea of silence that came along with side X. And even for me to a certain period of time in the side Y of, yeah, this may be my burden to bear, but I'm just not going to talk about it. Yeah. was Seeing so many other people that were falling into the exact same pitfall of failure and shame that I had been in and thinking, why did I go through that? If it's not going to be, of a benefit to anyone else that Mm. I'm wasting all of this pain that I drug myself and my family through. um, And God's not able to use it because I'm not talking about what he has done in my life. Like this is his story and it's wasted on me if I'm not sharing it with other people. And so that is one of my favorite things when people ask, why do you continue to discuss your issues with sexuality? If sex isn't an active part of your life. And that's what I continue to come back to is boasting in my weaknesses to show God's strength that 
It's an example that Paul gives. It's an example that we see in so many other places in scripture. And if there are people that I can prevent from making all of those mistakes and learning from experience, then it's worth it. As you mentioned, another big part of your story is that, you know, God has given you the opportunity to um, adopt two amazing kids and become a mom. And can you share a little bit about how that all happened? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the interesting things. And it does tie in with sexuality and relationships um, because um, my parents got married when they were 19. So once I graduated (laughs) from college and was still single, we didn't have a lot as far as things in common to discuss with relationships and with life. Um, Being a single adult was a foreign concept to my parents. And, um, but they had also, when I was growing up, they had been foster parents. My youngest uh, sister is adopted out of foster care. So I always had um, just kind of what I thought was going to be a conflicting desire of it. I don't know that I will ever be married to a man which means that I'm not probably ever going to have kids, but I've always really loved being around kids and wanted to be a mom. So I had decided that I was going to foster that my parents had done that. We had lots of friends that had. And so I always was just in the understanding that if I were ever in a place that I was financially stable um, and had room for kids that I was going to open my home for children. So I started that process probably seven years ago now. I'm beginning to look at that, that I had uh, recognized that teaching had become sort of my accidental career. Uh, I started in it as kind of an in-between when I was uh, in between degrees in seminary and what had been a six-month long-term sub-position ended up being a six-year permanent position at a school that I was at at the time and had bought a home and was looking at this idea of I'm, I'm in my thirties. If I'm going to parent now's the time to do it. And I don't need to wait for some miraculous change in sexuality and for Prince Charming to come along that the, the things that I had determined for myself would be enough to provide room for family had occurred. And so I began doing training with the Tennessee Baptist children's home. They were starting to offer their services as being a foster care placement facility, as opposed to just orphan care and having a home for children there on campus of actually having foster parents outside of the um, children's home. And my dad had served on their board previously. So I was aware of who they were and the work that they did. And uh, so I participated in their first training group. Um, really to kind of be a guinea pig, honestly, for the lady that was doing the training. It was her first time teaching through the training, Mm. and I had been around this my entire life. So I was kind of looking at it as a dual purpose, uh, really. Mm. And it was an excellent opportunity to really see the inside of training and to see what um, religious-based and independent 
uh, foster care organizations can look like. Um, it, it's a hard place to work from that perspective. Uh, we think about uh, state social workers being overworked and underpaid and often those who are at private organizations, it is worse because there are fewer of them and it's a private organization. So that comes with its own issues being a nonprofit. Um, but did my training with them and originally was planning on um, fostering the kids that nobody else wanted. And again, that was part of uh, how my parents had done things that my mom usually took medically fragile infants that no one else wanted. Um, and I was going on the opposite end of the age group because I worked with teenagers and I love teenagers that I wanted to provide um, homes for teenagers and have a place for them to be able to go, possibly do adoption. And uh, so that's why I started in it to begin with. And I ended up having um, two placements that um, thought were going to be foster to adopt placements um, of minority teenagers from other states and each time ran into difficulties um, with being single and with um, being white. So it ended up having nothing to do with sexuality, um, which was a blessing, um, but just the struggle of meeting cultural needs for, uh, for these kids. And so after two fell through, um, it really did kind of feel like a miscarriage in a way because um, I'd had these files with these kids' pictures and I knew all about them and we were arranging things to do like weekend visits and this anticipation building up and then to find out that it was being cut off by social workers in another state. Um, it's like, I, I don't know that I can do this. Mm. So it kind of took some time away from it, um, finished up the degree that I was working on and then immediately moved to a new state to begin a new job and really had an argument with the Lord about it and just decided, you know, maybe it's not meant for me to be a mom. I've been in education for a decade now. I need to change my perspective that these are my kids and I need to pour my life into my school. So I ended up taking an administration position in Kentucky and seven weeks after I moved up there, I had a friend invite me to her son's birthday party that she knew I love being around kids and I was homesick for my niece and nephews and all of my friends kids so she was like come to my seven-year-old's birthday party you'll love it so <laughs> I went to his birthday party and her next-door neighbors were foster parents and they had all these kids running around crazy and I just started talking with them about being a um, kind of a fill-in parent for them if they needed any sort of respite care mm -hmm. um, offered to babysit if they had kids that ne they needed a break on the weekend or going on vacation I was like I would love to do respite care that would be like the perfect mix of kids and having time and helping people that sounds great so that was going to be my connection to kind of get just plugged in with people in Louisville and um, the two youngest kids that they had in their home at the time are the two that ended up um, becoming my son and daughter um, mm. that the first time that I saw them, I was like, ah, those are not minority teenagers. Those are two very Caucasian babies. <laughs> they were, <laughs> they were uh, 14 months and 28 months when I first met them. And I was like, that is not what I was looking for, but those are my kids. 
Um, and just like something shifted in my heart the first time that I met them. And so I went from doing respite care with them uh, for several months to their placement being changed from foster care to termination for their birth family. And when that was changed, um, Kentucky actually fast tracked my training from Tennessee um, so that I would be a home available for them. And they were transferred to my care as a foster placement in December of 2015. And then in November of 2017, the adoption was final and they officially became Masons. So we're coming up on two years of that being for always family, which is what they, they love to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has been an insane ride. Um, not at all what I expected, um, but it has been very, very good for all of us in crazy ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I can. The one thing I know, I may not have children. I have 15 nieces and nephews. And yeah, yeah, my, my, my siblings do not have stop having children. But I have learned that whenever children are involved, it's going to be a ride that you did not expect. <laughs> They do not have a script, and even if you think that you have one, they will not follow it. So nope. it, is, it is incredible. Yes, yeah. And I, when I went to your, um, your workshop at Revoice, which was non-traditional families or biblical families, yeah. I loved your story, and I loved the workshop, uh, especially because I have always struggled similar as you as like, I don't think I'm going to be married. Yeah. But I feel called, I, I love children and I, I, I wanted kids. And so kind of wrestling with this. And one of the things that impacted me most about your workshop was where you showed the different families that are in the Bible that don't fit into the two parent, 2.5 kids situation that right, we think of in exactly. the States. And so I would, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how how the Bible has influenced your view of family. Yeah, absolutely. That was really a a freeing understanding for me um, that when I started pursuing foster care, I had a couple of friends who with very good intentions, I know their heart and um, know why they were kind of checking in with me on things, but it was um, asking the question, how, how does this look like? basically intentionally establishing a family and bringing kids into a home where they aren't going to have a dad and you know, they're not going to have a dad. Um, what, what does that look like? Like, how are you, how are you understanding that based on scripture? And it kind of tripped me up at first because really when you look at family, the understanding, the ideal, um, and the assumption in scripture is that yes, you have a mom and a dad and biological children, and this is how God designed family. Even secular sociologists tend to agree that the core nuclear family is the ideal situation for raising kids. There's an old Walgreens commercial that says, however, we don't live anywhere near perfect. Talks about this perfect little town. Mm -hmm. Um, But we don't live in perfect. We live in a fallen, broken world. And just like kids may lose a biological parent to death or some other tragedy. At the same time, we are given a command consistently through the Old and the New Testament to care for widows and orphans. And that command 
um, doesn't come with a prerequisite that only married couples do that. It just says those who follow God, those who follow after Christ, need to care for widows and orphans. And so initially that was my understanding is that this is a way to provide a home to a child who otherwise would not have one. So in a broken and fallen world, is it better for a kid to be in foster care and bounce from house to house to house until they turn 18 and then they're basically kicked out on their own? Or is it better for them to be in a stable, loving home that only has one parent but has an intentionally strong support system around it so that they can see as close an opportunity as they have to what love and family should look like. And even to my most conservative friends, that was kind of, it kind of gave them peace about it, that that's like, okay, that is a perspective that I can understand of being able to create a family that is going to be a better situation for kids than them not having a family at all. And so that's really been my understanding um, from that point is in a fallen world, you do the best you can with what you have and to help proactively fill that gap for my kids. This is something that Jill and I talked about in that first year workshop as well is you may not have a father in the house, but my kids have some of the most incredible godly men in their life who fill that role for them. And I've been very intentional about having that happen. So I have friends in my community group at church who um, help me with things as simple as loading the kids in and out of the car on Sundays and on Tuesday nights at community group. There are some who will, we tease about them fighting over the opportunity to take the kids to do something so that I can have a break. Um, but also we have some that have kids the same age as my kids. And if they're doing a daddy daughter date, they may take my daughter with them or just doing things like that, that are an opportunity. And then last year I moved from uh, Kentucky um, so that we could be closer to my family so that they would have that opportunity of being around their immediate family. And so my, my parents and both of my brothers and their families and my sister all live um, two exits up the interstate from us. So when they have opportunity, they have four other cousins that they get to play with and we see them on a weekly basis and just giving them a chance to be in homes where there is a mom and a dad that have a godly relationship um, they are around that enough that they they see it, they understand it. Um, sometimes it brings up some hard conversations at our house, um, admittedly, that mm -hmm. they want to know why they don't have a daddy. Mm -hmm. So it's something that we get to talk about as far as this is the way that God has designed our family, what he has led us to, and that families look all different ways. Uh, this is what our family looks like. I still haven't discounted the idea that one day they may have a dad, but right now that's not something that God seems to be providing. And yeah. we're cool with that because he is ultimately our heavenly father and he is a perfect father. And it is better in some ways, especially to have no dad at all than to have a bad father, um, especially when you have fathers around you who provide such incredible 
um, examples and really love my kids like they're their own. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a while back I was explaining to my mom and having that same kind of question, like how do you justify adopting as, as a single person? Cause I, I, I haven't adopted, but I, I see it as a very big possibility in my life. And, and I was kind of explaining to her the same thing of, you know, it'd be different if I was going to do in vitro or something where exactly. I'm bringing in a child into the world where I can't provide them everything that I can, but by adopting, I'm giving a child, I may not be able to give the child quote unquote, the perfect situation, but I can give them a better situation than what they're in at the moment. Exactly. And I, I have seen the same as you, that that kind of understanding really helps people go, oh, that, that makes sense. Right. You know? It's a, it's a subtle difference between I want to start a family and I want to provide a family for a child yes. who doesn't have it. And that's mm. really the perspective that I've taken, that I'm not starting my own family. Um, I'm providing a family for kids who are already here that wouldn't have one otherwise. Yes. Yeah. And I think that the other time, the thing that we as Christians sometimes forget as well about the biblical view of family is we always put it as it's two parents and biological children. And we forget that if you really want the biblical family, no family lived on their own. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no family was just two parents. They were the parents, the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, all of them probably in one roof. Right. in ancient Israelite culture. And so I like what you shared about how when there's the concerns of, well, oh, you, your kids are not going to have a father figure. If I were to adopt that, my kids are not going to have a, a feminine figure. They all, well, they will. I mean, right. because if we're living the biblical way, which is in community, they should not just have one father figure, or one mother figure, but multiple ones. Right. Yeah. Now, otherwise and, you're missing out. I mean, we talk a lot about people not understanding that their family of origin was an incredibly toxic or abusive situation. And a lot of times we explain that by saying it's all they know. Well, the only reason that that's all they know is because they've been isolated in this little American unit of the family um, that doesn't expose you to other families. So the more you're living in community, the more opportunity that your family has to see lots of different ways that families live. So it really is a built-in accountability system um, for families that, that God tends to, tends to know what he's talking about when he gives us instructions about how to best live our lives together. Abs absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned that your, your daughter has kind of, your, your kids have sometimes asked about like, you know, why they don't have a daughter or why you're, why, you know, that situation. And one question I've wondered about, because this is something even I've wondered about if I were to have kids, have you ever thought about, and I know your kids are younger, so this is, I'm sure this isn't something that you've had to deal with as of now, but have you ever thought about how you would deal with explaining your situation with your sexuality and stuff with them and, and those kind of conversations that might come up in the future? Yeah, it's something that I've thought through um, a little bit. My kids are five and six. And so we are getting to a point of them um, beginning to kind of understand relationships and ask questions um, that have to do with all those <laughs> really fun parts of life. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and so that's always, that's always an adventure because um, you just never know when those questions are going to come at you. Um, mm -hmm. but looking and understanding, I have friends, um, again, you mentioned Jill Rennick that I did the workshop with last year. Her kids are a little older. And so that's something that 
that we have talked about and she's been just upfront and honest with her kids from the beginning. Um, she helps run a side B ministry where she lives. And so she's the director there. And so it's just always been something that her family has been around and that's helped her kids kind of understand what that looks like. And thankfully I've had that same opportunity really with my kids so far that we have um, a pretty strong group of side B individuals here in Chattanooga. And we get together on a fairly regular basis just for fellowship. And one of the advantages of being kind of the older aunt in the crowd now is that um, a lot of the people that meet with us are in their early 20s. A lot of them are still college students, mm -hmm. which I'm hugely thankful for because that wasn't even an option when I was in college is living in a healthy situation together surrounding sexuality. And so that's huge. But one of the things that I've been really excited about is that they have been so open to my kids being part of our fellowship stuff that they just assume they're going to be there when we have dinner or worship times. Um, they go out of their way to volunteer to babysit. So they help me with the kids. And when eventually um, they begin asking why in the world do all of you you know, like, what is it that we're doing? Why is it this particular group of people that meet together? Being able to have that conversation with them that when we get to the point of really dealing with and understanding um, sex and sexuality of being able to say that we help each other in this accountability of a commitment to honoring Jesus with how we are in relationship with other people. And um, so that's what that I'm hoping that is going to look like. Hope I probably have a few more years to think about it, but there's a good, <laughs> good possibility I won't. So hopefully I've begun looking at those things, um, yeah. but really helping them understand that, that we don't all see the world the same way and we're all called to the same type of holiness though. And that that's why I don't, I don't have a husband um, in the most basic of explanations is God hasn't brought me a husband. And so that's why you don't have a daddy. And there are some reasons why that's most likely probable, but having that conversation when that specific question comes up with them. Yeah. I, I do have to say kids love to add, ask that question. Why aren't you married? My nieces and yeah. nephews ask that question to me and then I will go back to them. Why aren't you married? And they're like, I'm five. And I'm like, well, good. When you yeah. get it done, then you can come to me and ask why not. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> like, till then, till you have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you don't need to be asking me. So I would, I would love to hear from you about what, what has been some of those difficult things that you've had to deal with and, and what way would you say that your road as a mom has been the biggest blessing for you? Oh, um, the biggest difficulty uh, for me has really been a practical situation of um, having been a single adult for so long and having lived on my own for so long that I was really used to 
not having to consult or really even think about anyone else. When I was making life decisions that if I was working on a paper at one in the morning and realized I didn't have bread for lunches the next day, I could just go to the store and get a loaf of bread at one in the morning. Um, and now I, I tease sometimes, but it really is, it can be frustrating of recognizing that basically every night at 7.30 when my kids go to bed, I'm grounded till the next day, um, that we, we live alone. I don't have any roommates. And so I'm the only adult at the house. And that can be, that takes an entire perspective shift. Um, I remember the first year that they lived with me, I scheduled um, a meeting in another state for the end of October and I was ready to go. I was going to do this awesome training. And a friend was like, what do you mean you're going to be at a conference on October 31st? It's Halloween. And it took me several minutes to be like, why do I, Oh, that's right. I have to care. It's Halloween. I have kids now. And <laughs> I'm not here to take my kids trick or treating. And so just changing that whole thought perspective that my life and my calendar don't revolve around me anymore. Um, it still takes some getting used to, and, um, it has definitely helped in a positive way though, of really slowing me down and making sure that I am considering opportunities, thinking through things and just not living full tilt 24 seven, which is how I used to be. Um, they have forced me to understand the idea of Sabbath and of taking rest that you don't just throw the kids in the car and take them on a pace like that. They weren't designed to live that way and they won't, mm -hmm. they will shut down and freak out and it's better for everyone if we just stay at home for a day or two. Mm -hmm. So that's really been the biggest struggle for me um, is that dying to self and have friends talk about the idea that marriage does that for you, that you die to self and it, it applies just as much to having kids um, when they are the first people that you are living with that intimately being around one another all day, every day. My life is not my own, and they remind me of that multiple times every day. Um, they don't do what I tell them to the first time, and they don't work on my schedule. And having that dying to self sanctification is ongoing, and it really is hard seeing that there are times that my entire perspective on the trajectory of my career, of things that I've really wanted to do, of saying my primary responsibility now is to do what's best for these two little humans that God has entrusted to me. And it's not about me or my career or my wanderlust or wanting to see the world or what's the next new adventure, that this is my greatest adventure right now. And I need to do what's best for them. So yeah. that has just been a seismic shift. Um, and I'm still coming to terms with it sometimes, to be honest. Um, something parents yeah. have a hard time talking about that it's not always sunshine and roses and the best thing that's ever happened. You really do have to count the cost and consider what you are giving up as a single person when you decide to foster or adopt. Um, and it's yes. a bigger deal than anyone. You can think that you know what it's going to be, but even then you really don't until oh, you're yeah. doing it. I, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up because that has honestly even been, even someone like me who I have always been confirmed of my, my, my desire for to have children. But I also live 
like, for instance, I'll give you my, my last week and this coming week schedule, which has been, I was in Colombia and I traveled in between cities in Colombia. Last night I flew to Florida. Then I'm in South Florida for today. And then later on this week I go to Orlando and then I fly back to Colombia. And one of my things has always been, dang it, when I have kids, this is not going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this, I, I, like you said, I, I have to consult. I have to think of, of like them and all of that thing. And that's always been one, uh, I wouldn't say a fear, but just a thing of like, wow, when that happens, things are going to change a lot. Yes. And that is a very healthy pause to have. I think that's one of those realistic things that I just looked through it and was like, yeah, I do have a really busy life and I love to travel, but I'll just take the kids with me or they can just stay with so-and-so. And And it's not that easy. Um, Mm -hmm. We're working on year number four and it's just now to where my kids are comfortable even staying just with my parents overnight or for two nights for me to go uh, do a conference or something like that. That it's not something I do frequently now um, because they still struggle with the separation anxiety and abandonment fears and things like that. Um, We had some things go on that kind of brought that back up back in the spring for us. And so like this year, for instance, I rearranged a lot of what my plans were and meetings were around revoice for this year because I brought the kids with me. Mm -hmm. They needed to be with me and we needed to all be together. And um, so they went with me. And that's one of those things that really changes. Going to a conference with two kids is very different (laughs) from going to a conference on your own. Uh, I can only imagine. I went to the Revoice with two family members and that was enough work. I can't, and those were adults. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) It um, kind of changes the whole purpose of a conference when you do that. So yes, yeah, that really has been the biggest, the biggest struggle for me. Mm-hmm. Um, is just, I don't get to do what I want to do. Um, but at the same time, that is good growth and maturity. And so I've, I've learned to embrace it much more than I used to. But the, the biggest blessing really has been at the same time, looking at that perspective of my own selfishness, but then being able to see um, so many times of hearing like this still small voice when I'm frustrated with the kids or I'm asking them a question Um, I've asked them to do something for the 15th time, you know, you need to go to bed, you need to go to bed. And they're like coming in, I just need to give you one more hug. And it's like, I need you to obey me more than I need you to love me right now. And going, Oh, that sounds an awful lot. Like to obey is better than sacrifice. Okay. Okay. Now I see what God is saying. And so being in that role of parent has in a lot of ways helped me understand my own relationship with God as father. um, Because I see so often me wanting to say things to the kids that I can see in scripture that God says to his kids over and over and over again, and beginning to understand in a more real way, why he says the things that he says to us, why he wants us to do things his way, Um, The fact that I can ask the kids to not do something because as a 39 year old, I have a whole lot more life experience. And I know that if you stand on that table, eventually you're going to fall and hurt yourself. And a four year old doesn't get that, that God who is outside of space and time can see what is going to be the end result of me making a really dumb, sinful decision. And he is begging me, please don't do that. 
because I love you and I want what's best for you. And me going, I got this, knowing how that hurts his heart, how that can be so frustrating to him, um, has been a huge blessing for me personally of really finally being able to understand that relational aspect of God as father. Um, and then just in really practical, fun things, um, my kids are hilarious. And so in those times when life gets frustrating, when there's been a problem at school or I'm dealing with grown-up stuff, as my daughter calls it, um, when life has just been really hard, um, there's not much better than little kids crawling up on the couch with you wanting to snuggle or just getting in your face and being like, I love you, mommy. When you don't feel loved and you don't feel like you've been really good at anything that day, um, kids are really intuitive and they get that. And um, they show me more grace than I show them a lot of days. They are quick to forgive and are loving and encouraging and are just awesome at being that type of give and take support. Um, when I'm being frustrated, they have no problem calling me out about it, but they're a lot nicer about it than I tend to be or other adults mm -hmm. when they do that. So that's been really the biggest blessing for me is knowing that, um, that there are these kids that just love me in spite of myself a lot of days and are starting to learn how to trust other people because of the work that God is doing in and through my life for them. I have to say, that's literally one of my favorite things about kids is they can be hilarious. <laughs> so funny. Yes, absolutely. And I guess my, my last main question I would really love to ask is for everyone listening, you know, people like me who are just very interested in the possibility of, of adopting as, as a single person and what that could look like and how to do that. For people who are considering it, what would, what would be your recommendations? Like what advice would you give? Yeah, great question. Um, that is really a good place to seriously start looking as if you are in a situation that you can keep somebody's kids longer than overnight. That's a, a good chance to get a, a little bit better idea of what that's going to look like for your life if it's a matter of offering to keep a sibling's kids for the week while they go on vacation with their spouse. Um, having some longer term opportunity um, while you're still just exploring the idea of getting a taste of how it's going to change your life is a good kind of reality, uh, reality check with that. But also starting the process of getting approved, looking at things from an official standpoint, a great place to start is offering to be a respite worker for um, either state foster care or for a private organization in your area. They are always looking for people who will keep kids overnight all the way to week-long respite stays while families go on vacation, things like that, um, to even longer-term things. If a family experiences some sort of crisis or emergency, that sometimes a respite placement can be two or three months. And providing that 
space and that rest for foster um, and even adoptive families is a huge blessing for both the kids and for the family. So and that gives you another opportunity to really kind of see how that's going to shape um, some changes in your life. And if it still continues to be something that you are just drawn to that idea, doing some good research on the organizations that are in your area is, is a key that I would have just gone through my county um, to do foster care. Again, that's what my parents did. So I would have just fostered for the county had I not already known and had an established relationship with the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home and wanted to help them get that off the ground. So a lot of times uh, just doing a county interest meeting, if you check Facebook, there are events that your Department of Child and Family Services uh, will often post events of foster care interest meeting or this is coming up and it gives you an opportunity to get your foot in the door and to at least begin the training process. And sometimes people do the training and then they never end up um, taking a placement. They may realize this is not for me, but it better equips them to help families in trauma at church or at work, um, just in their communities. So I would always encourage people to do the foster care training so that you are available um, if and when that's ever needed, even in your own community. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen situations like that come up before of families having a crisis at church and the kids having to go into foster care with a family they don't know because no one that they do know is equipped to care for them officially through the state. Mm -hmm. um, so having that is a huge place to start. But asking lots of questions, um, find people that you know or contact um, an agency and ask them if they have any families who are willing to talk with you. Most foster and adoptive families are willing to be bluntly honest uh, with people who are interested because it is, it's hard. It can be very painful. Um, and they're going to tell you what the reality is of that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know normally how long the trainings take? Like what, what that normally looks like? Depending on um, one, where you are and two, what type of training you want to do. The standard training is generally from four to six Saturdays and that mm -hmm. may be spread out over three months. You may meet once or twice a month. Um, some places mm -hmm. do it that you're going to do six Saturdays in a row and be done. Um, but it's going to go anywhere from three to six months generally because you have to schedule home visits and there are lots of interviews and paperwork to process. And um, unfortunately, right now we are experiencing a shortage of social workers. And so really we have we are we have a shortage of families, but we also have a shortage of people who are processing the paperwork to get new families in. So it does take a little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's definitely what I've heard. Like I have um, one of my cousins. She's she. Um, fosters and she actually just adopted one of her foster kids um, and she's taught me a lot about that that you know definitely on the front end you many times have to be patient to get through the whole thing right. but then once you get through it you're going to get calls about exactly about <laughs> placements for sure right. um, and my other question because I've this is something I wonder about because you obviously went through a private organization right and then, but you were saying that if you hadn't known about that organization, you would have gone through the the county. Right. Do you know, and if you don't know, it's fine. If as a single person, is there a way that's normally 
better because I, I know that, I mean, I've heard different things about like some private organizations kind of not preferring singles or something like that. Like, do you know if there's a, a, a best way to go about or anything or does it really not matter? Either way is good. It really um, doesn't matter at this point, especially for fostering. Um, there are still some conservative Christian organizations that would just prefer that ideal um, mm-hmm. having a two-parent home. And a lot of that is even just because of the support system. It's just harder to care for kids on your own. Yeah. Um, and if you can demonstrate that you have a strong support system around you, then it's really not a problem. So that was my biggest thing is I had to demonstrate who those people were. Some of them, uh, the social worker actually called to say, you know, are you aware of what you're getting into by committing to, uh, to help with this? But other than that, um, it's getting a lot better, especially for foster families that being single is not a barrier to that anymore. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this with me, you know, to, to be honest, when I said that, like, I really enjoyed your guys' first workshop at Revoice, it was actually definitely a, a, a game changer for me because that was a moment where I, I was starting to really give up hope on the possibility of having children. Yeah. And I know for some people, the call to celibacy is a call to not only give up marriage, but, you know, children. And I, I understand for some people that that is what it has been for them. But that was something really hard that I had been going through and, and being able to hear from you and hear in, in the workshop and, and all of that was really a point of hope for me of going, no, this desire doesn't necessarily have to die. Um, this still can happen. Right. And so I even want to just thank you for being so open because I think it's really so important for those of us who are going through that of like, I am called to singleness, but I still really would love kids. And how does this work? Because I don't think we have enough. Sing- I think there are multiple single parents, but they're just many of them are not as vocal and willing to share. Yeah. And, and we need those stories. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. That is a huge encouragement too, because there are times that I think, why do we bother doing this? But it is, mm-hmm. it's a good reminder that um, any life experience that we can share is most likely going to be, an encouragement to somebody. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And come on, was that not awesome? Becca is amazing. I want to thank her again for joining. If you have any follow-up questions that you would love to have answered by Becca in our Q&A episode coming up, send those into the podcast, uh, whether through email or social media. Send those in. Would love to hear your guys' thoughts. I love hearing from you guys. Also, a special thanks to Murphy DX for our intro music. The song that was in episode today was called Wonder love. Go check them out today on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you get your music. So just remember to love Jesus and be fabulous as pretty much all of you are. Love you guys. Love you guys.